Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance coach and athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. This week, we are doing something a little bit different for the first time here. Rather than having research and news on the same weekend or in the same edition of the podcast, we're splitting it up in half. And so this past weekend, we released our news podcast, which was about the Chicago Marathon and about uh, the Ironman World Championship in Kailua, Kona, Hawaii. And now here on Thursday, we're actually releasing our research podcast uh, and where we're going to talk about a couple of things related to, to what's going on in the research world. So, right, Patrick? That's right. Uh, I joined the podcast about a year ago, and so we decided we were going to kind of take a step back and, you know, think about the ways we can improve. And, you know, one, one piece of feedback we received from a lot of listeners is that they love to listen to the podcast on their commute to work. And, you know, since a lot of our you know listeners are here in the Atlanta area, there is plenty of commute time with Atlanta traffic. However, we want to give folks a chance to maybe only have a 20 or 30 minute commute, a chance to, you know, listen in smaller chunks or, or in shorter chunks. Or if you listen to it in a run or whatever. So we, we figured it'd be a good idea to just break up the news and the research so it gives the listeners a bit more control in terms of, you know, instead of having to listen to an entire episode at once, they could kind of break it up a bit more naturally. Right on, right on. So yeah, I think that, that the length of the podcast is something that that you and I have, have kind of wrestled with and worked on a lot over the course of the last little while, and we've gotten a lot of good feedback from listeners over on that over the course of the past, uh, well, really since the podcast began. And so, uh, so thanks to all the folks who gave us feedback on that, and by all means, let us know whether this actually works for you. But um, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into uh, to some research here. Are you going to go first or me? Uh, sure, I'll go first. Might as well. All right, take it away. So... As you know, I love to talk about sleep. Uh, that, that's been one of the themes on this podcast. I think the major themes on this podcast have been hard days hard, easy days easy. Uh, make sure you get in your long runs, and Patrick loves to talk about sleep. Yeah, no kidding. So, now, now, now let me interrupt you, Patrick, and, and I actually want to, to give you a shout-out here in, in this public forum and, and say that you know, a few weeks ago when I gave you a hard time about how every piece of research that you mentioned is on sleep, and spoiler alert, the piece of research he's about to share is on sleep, but but I, I just want to share from my own point of view. So uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, I was not feeling great. I had been slugging through some runs. I had been just sort of trudging, was not feeling good. I had a stomach ache. Um, I was starting to feel sick. I was starting to feel feverish, feverish, all that sort of thing. I put my sons to sleep, and I went to sleep basically at the same time they did. And that night, I slept about 11 hours. And I felt a lot better the next day, but not perfect yet. So the next night, I did it again. It was a Tuesday night. I did it for the second night in a row. I got a ton of sleep, like 20 hours worth of sleep over the course of two days. I woke up on Wednesday, and not only was I no longer feeling sick, I ended up going out and having the best run that I've had in months. Um, my Achilles, which is always bothering me, even bothered me less during this run. Um, and so I, I officially hereby take back any ridicule that I sent your way about sleep being maybe a little bit overrated um, because just two nights of really good sleep profoundly changed me on a physical level and made me feel much better. So thanks for that, Patrick. Yeah, and I'll also kind of add to that a, a bit, too. Um, the reason I actually kind of probably obsess over sleep so much is I actually suffered from insomnia as a kid. Um, so for, for those of you who don't know, I was, I was a preemie baby. I think I was about seven and, a half, seven, seven and a half weeks preemie, spent the first few weeks or months of my life in a hospital where there's lights on 24 hours a day. 
And so all through childhood, I would suffer with insomnia, which means, you know, not being able to fall asleep until about three or four in the morning. And so, and that's why I just have that background of being like, man, this can be really important if you don't have it. Because all through childhood, there'd be nights where it'd be an hour or two of sleep, you know, and you just kind of have to keep rolling. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's kind of, you mentioned that. But, yeah, that's a little background probably why I obsess over it so much because for those of you who have had kids who maybe didn't sleep through the night, if you've seen it out for years at a time, you know, just how detrimental it can be, you know, to go without something as simple as sleep. Yeah, yeah. Something sure. we usually don't even think about. Yeah. And so so for you, I mean, and I, and I get the idea of sort of going on a, on a research binge almost like you've been going on with the sleep lately, but, I mean, that's I think that's a good thing. Um, in fact, the, the piece of research I'm going to share has to do with the research bin that I'm currently on, but anyway, you go ahead. So tell us the latest thing you got about sleep, man. Sure. So, you know, it's common sense in many ways that sleep is kind of the bedrock of our recovery and it's arguably the most effective recovery strategy we have as endurance athletes. Right. Right. I mean, we can talk about massages and, you know, uh, calf sleeves or compression sleeves all we want. But, or ice baths, but sleep really is kind of the best form of recovery that we have mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, getting in a hard run and getting in plenty of sleep. Now, as we've discussed a lot before, the, the research literature highlights a lot of very negative effects sleep deprivation has on your physical and cognitive performance. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's impaired cognitive, you know, functioning, impaired, you know, sports-specific skill execution. You, you have impaired motor skills, impaired judgment. Uh, greater mood swings. There, I mean, there's all kinds of things that can lead to, or that come from sleep, sleep deprivation, which, we, which we've talked about before in the past. But I want to talk about a 2018 systematic review that examined the, from uh, NIH, that examined the evidence behind interventions to improve sleep. So long story short, we know sleep deprivation is bad. So then there's all these studies out there to look at, okay, well, how can we improve, you know, sleep, or how can we kind of send off some of the effects of sleep deprivation. And this study looked at, okay, of all the different methods out there, which ones have been found to be the the most effective? Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, awesome. So they they looked at 10 different studies with a total of 218 participants. And all the participants were athletes, by the way, across various sports. And they looked at sleep intervention and divided into three broad categories. Sleep extension... So just getting more sleep, uh, better sleep hygiene, which is th- things like maintaining a regular sleep schedule, avoiding coffee or alcohol before bedtime, improving, like, you know, having softer pillows. It's like the little things you try to do to improve the quality of sleep, right? Sleep hygiene. And then uh, I, I am totally going yeah. to totally try and figure out a way to work sleep hygiene into a conversation over the course of the next couple of weeks. Anyway, it does on. sound like a, it does sound like a term you hear from like your middle school like health teacher, doesn't it? A little bit, yeah. Like we're trying to improve your sleep hygiene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. Anyway, I mean, it, it makes it, yeah, it, like, it makes perfect sense. It's just a term I've never heard before. Um, keep going. It, it, it's such an academic term. I mean, at academics we have a way, right? Of right. Just making it the weirdest terms. Right. And then there's this post-exercise recovery strategies, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of its own little ball game and they looked at, at all these studies and they wanted to know which one kind of fended off sleep depri- the effects of sleep deprivation the best and what they found was the improvements in sleep quality or sleep hygiene as they Did called they? it had minimal had minimal effects oh. so you know the fact that you maybe you avoid alcohol bef- bef- before uh sleeping 
or that you have a softer bed, it helped. But the real kind of driver behind, you know, improved performance was simply sleeping more, hmm. which is great because it means it's a very simple and straightforward answer for those of us who are constantly trying to improve our recovery and improve our sleep. You know, to say, hey, all we have to do is sleep more. It's, it's a very simple answer. There's not a, you know, a gremlin kind of lurking that we're not addressing in our own habits. The downside is there almost is no getting around it, according to this study, that you can't say, okay, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to go to bed at midnight and, you know, just have black curtains make it extra dark, and then those six hours will be a higher quality and therefore will make up for the lack of sleep. Right. It really is as straightforward as just getting, you know, those eight to nine hours if you can. Now, I also want to throw out, just like we do with all of our discussions of sleep, that there are a lot of busy professionals out there, a lot of parents who say, hey, I can't get that kind of sleep. I have so many obligations as a parent and as a professional that I simply can't. However, this does add another kind of voice that's or, or another kind of nail in the coffin of just trying to get more just to help yourself even. Yeah. You know, even if it means spending one less hour or 30 minutes less at the office, it could actually improve your actual performance in that shorter amount of time. Mm-hmm. The, so what the, say you? Yeah, the the interesting thing about it to me, so when my sons were first born um, and and when, the, when we brought them home, uh, and that was in April of, of 2014, um, I, at the time, was in the midst of triathlon training. I was a few months out from going to the Ironman World Championship. Um, I, I, and we had a lot to do in the middle of the night, <laughs> you know, because they were yeah. they were born um, they were born early. Um, they weren't they weren't preemies like you said that you were, or at least they technically were, but they were full size, um, and so they didn't have to spend any time in the NICU or anything. But but um, but they still they were difficult to feed. Let's just put it that way. Um, and so we were having to wake up three, four times a night to, to feed them. Um, and there are two of them. And so it wasn't just a matter of being like, oh yeah, just kind of knock it out and go back to sleep. Um, and there wasn't a, there also wasn't the, a friend of mine said before they were born, there wasn't this, okay, now it's your turn. When you have twins, it's always your turn because there's two of them. And so it takes two people to take care of them, do you know? Um, and so, right. so, so I'm waking up three or four times a night and, and my wife and I both are, and we're having to deal with them, um, during the la- the tail end of the school year where I'm also working very hard. Um, and I was still able to, to train during that period some, and I was still able to kind of hold it together. And looking back on it, I remember telling several people that the total amount of time I spent in bed, so from the time I turned off the light and was going to bed until the time I was getting out of bed and starting the day in the morning, that was actually a significant chunk of time. That was usually like 10 hours. Um, now... I was never sleeping more than three hours at a time, but the total amount of time I was in bed was 10 hours. Do you see what I'm saying? And so, yeah. so, so I might've actually through it. So over the course of that 10 hours, I might've actually been asleep for, for seven or eight of them. Um, and, and I would have been awake for two or three of them. Uh, and sort of in light of what you're saying, that kind of makes me, makes me think about it. So my sleep quality was not great, but my sleep overall quantity was still, pretty good um and 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 that kind of falls in line with what you're describing do you know what i mean yeah absolutely it kind of gives you hope in case you you know wake up in the middle of the night and kind of have to you know put around for for something or, other, or you know feed a child that there is a little bit of hope you still have a little bit of control yeah over you know kind of protecting yourself from sleep deprivation yeah yeah 
So, so it really is kind of all about literally carving out just a bigger chunk of time, um, which, mm-hmm. which, I, which, which, like you said, it's the most simple and most straightforward. But in some ways, it's 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 also not the easiest to do. <laughs> the easiest to do is right. Get, it's like, also yeah. The easiest to do is get a special pillow, right? <laughs> but but right. It's, it's almost the last answer you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 yeah yeah. It's the most straightforward, but it's not the easiest. Very good. Very good. Uh, well, thanks for bringing that one. That's that's interesting and certainly something to consider. I am, you know, I'm a month out from my big target race, and and based on what we've talked about with sleep, um, I am trying to a add as much as I possibly can because you remember the study that you shared that said as little as 20 minutes can actually make a difference, um, and then b yep. I'm also I'm trying trying to pay more attention to it now rather than paying attention to it just the week before the race because uh, you recall another study that you shared showed that that effectively by the time you get to about a week before the race the die is already really kind of cast and there's no way you're entirely going to be able to wake up uh, or, or or get enough sleep to make up for 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 the lost sleep that month ahead of time and so so yeah uh, like I said I give you a hard time about it but but. Um, I would say more than anything else, you you've uh, you you're you're bringing studies on sleep have have caused changes in my behavior, uh, and so I appreciate that. Um, so I'm here for I'm here to put you to sleep on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> very nice, very nice. Um, so you know, we talk about you being on a sleeping binge. I've been on a bit of a muscle activation binge lately um, because I was so fascinated by that study that I talked about a couple of weeks ago, um, where they talked about how the muscles that you use. Uh, and the joints that you use and the parts of your legs that you use in the late part of a marathon are different. Um, and so you recall that it said specifically it shifts from your lower legs, using your lower legs, up to using your upper legs more. Um, and that makes you less efficient, um, not only because uh, those muscles use more energy because they're larger muscle groups, um, but also because they have less mechanical ability to, to store uh, energy and return it to you for free. Um, so your knees don't spring back the same way that your, your ankles do. Um, and, and I've been just kind of, kind of fascinated by that, um, that idea of muscle activation over the course of the last little while. And then in addition, I think some of it, some of my, my fascination with this has been fueled by, uh, a workout that I did recently. Um, you've heard me talk, I think talk before Patrick, and I know some of our listeners are familiar with this. There's this indoor cycling program called Sufferfest. Um, and and Sufferfest, it's they have a terrible sense of humor, and and their overall aesthetic is not great. But they have they have some pretty really cool- something titled Sufferfest has a bad sense of humor. I'm <laughs> <Right>? shocked. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so so uh, and their, their musical tastes are terrible too. So I definitely listen to my own music when I'm doing that. But but they have good workouts, um, and and they they have cycling footage on the screen during most of the time that they're actually doing it, which, which I find inspiring. And so, so I, I do use Sufferfest and I pay for it, and I, th- I think they're the good workouts here. But, but they recently put out a new workout called, called, called GOAT, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time, right? Um, and yeah. ba- basically the workout, it's only about a 45-minute workout. All their workouts are fairly short. Uh, most of them, the vast majority of them are, are an hour or less. Um, and in the workout, you do a lot of low-cadence pedaling. Um, and low cadence pedaling is well known inside the cycling community to be something that increases muscle recruitment. Um, in other words, if you pedal at a low cadence, you'll recruit more muscles and ergo you will activate more muscles and, and, and you will train more. And so anyway, I'm doing this this workout. I actually just did it today. And, and 
it says at the beginning, it says, you're going to do some low, low cadence pedaling. It's going to help with muscle recruitment, blah, blah, blah. And it says, because of this, this workout is actually gives you just as many benefits as a three-hour steady ride. Now, that's a ridiculous claim. <laughs> a three-hour steady yeah. ride. I mean, you don't, you're not going to – I don't care what you do for 45 minutes. It's not going to be the same as going out for a three-hour steady ride. Or at least, at least it's not going to be the same benefits. Now, the benefits you get from doing a hard 45 minutes might be better, depending on what your goal is, or for, for that day and for that training cycle, than going out for a three-hour steady ride. But suggest there's like a one-to-one comparison, what you'll get from a zone two, three-hour ride, and, and from a Sufferfest ride, for 45 minutes with a lot of low-cadence pedaling is the same. That's, that's just a ludicrous assertion. But anyway, the reason why they're making that assertion and the, the what they're talking about is they're talking about muscle activation. They're basically saying that you'll have as much muscle activation in this 45 minutes that you would have during during uh, three hours. So anyway, the point being is that, that this has kind of sent me down a little bit of a rabbit hole around muscle activation, that sort of thing. And so I'll probably end up talking on our next podcast too about, about low cadence pedaling and muscle activation, all that sort of thing. But I was thinking about it specifically right now uh, when it comes to the treadmill. Um, and thinking about mm-hmm. about about muscle activation on the treadmill, and so in the process of trying to find good research on okay, what muscles are activated on the treadmill versus overground running, which is by the way what I have now learned that they call it in the academic world is overground running versus treadmill running. Um, the, the gosh, yeah, I know, right? Um, and I, I found a lot of really interesting research along the way, and so I did want to share two quick pieces of research that I found. Uh, the first one's from way back in 1998, and it's called Kinematics and Electromyography of Lower Limb Muscles in Overground and Treadmill Running. And it was by these uh, these three guys, Wank, Frick, and Schmidt Bleicher. Um, and basically, they they <laughs> they looked at uh, <laughs> it was it was it Wank, Frick, or Schmidt Bleicher that did it for you? Which which one actually made you start laughing out loud there? Uh, I, I don't know. I think it's the combination of the three. But right? holy. How? Yeah, you, you feel like if you're. I mean, a, how do you? Yeah, if you're a professor. How do you choose your advisor Wink, among those three? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. If 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 you if you're a professor and your last name is Wank and you're looking for 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 co-researchers, maybe you should stay away from people named Frick and Schmidt Bleicher. Anyway, uh, I'm just impressed <laughs> that I pronounce all three of them correctly. Uh, anyway, so so those three gentlemen, um, they they did a lot of work um, and filming and looking at the way that that people run on treadmills. Um, and they had a whole host of subjects, all sorts of different people running at different paces and, and different ability levels and different experience levels. And they found that, that there was only one common thing or two common things that everybody did similarly on the treadmill versus their overland running versus running outside. Uh, the first is that your foot lands a little bit flatter on the treadmill. Um, and the second is that your ground time is shorter. So you have a higher cadence. You're taking shorter steps, right? There was no other big biomechanical changes across the entire group. However, most people did change in some way. Um, and so they said it might be due to what they call the inherent instability of the treadmill that we kind of subconsciously on some level, we believe that we might be falling off. And so we, we change the way we run just a little bit on the treadmill. Um, but, but the only thing that we all tend to do is that we tend to land a little bit flatter, uh, on our feet when on the treadmill and we didn't tend to take shorter steps and have shorter ground time there. So, uh, the takeaway of that one being is that, that for the most part running on the treadmill is comparable to running outside, um, at least at least if we look across the entire group of runners. Um, so 
there's one thing. But anyway, the, the other one that, that I found that I thought was interesting too uh, was called lower extremity muscle activation dur- ver- during overground versus treadmill running. So this was actually about the, the lower extremity muscle activation. So, so those, those muscles that we were talking about that, where, that, that you use in the early parts of the marathon but not in the late parts of the marathon. And this was named, uh, done by a couple of uh, much more normally named guys named Waldham and Fisher, um, although they did work at the University of the Incarnate Word. Um, which is a small private college in San Antonio. I looked up and found out. Um, and this came out just in 2016 yeah. in the uh, the MOJ Yoga and Physical Therapy Journal. Um, and they took ten runners and um, and they measured them up in eight different places. And they were looking to see whether the activation of your lower extremity muscles was different when you're in the treadmill versus when you're running over ground, when you're running outside. And they thought it was going to be different. And they were looking for to, to figure ways it was different. And their conclusion was it wasn't different. Um, and so, so anyway, the, 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 the takeaway of looking at these two things for me, uh, is that, that, you know, in thinking about muscle activation, I was wondering, and I'm still wondering whether if you run on a treadmill, does that change your muscle activation in a way that necessary, that, that running on the treadmill will mean that you won't be able to run as well outside. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, yeah. And, and at least both of these studies then suggest that that no, your muscle activation is the same on the treadmill as it is outside, and so if you have to run on the treadmill or if you're opting to run on the treadmill, you're not necessarily going to give up anything um, versus running over ground or outside, uh, at least in terms of muscle activation. Um, what do you think? Uh, it, it, I guess it makes intuitive sense um, that you know it has a lot of the, the same kind of benefits or effects. I would have thought there would have been a, a bit more of a difference of considering how much you you do almost tense up when you're running on a treadmill, you know, as you talked about, because you almost fear, like, falling off the back. Yeah. But I'm not really sure what the takeaway is in terms of, like, how that should change our behavior or our training habits. To me, to me, the big, the, to me, the takeaway, and this is, and I, I was concerned about it because I did some treadmill running because it was softer and it felt better on my Achilles last year getting ready for Chicago. And I don't feel like I really got a lot out of the runs. And I was thinking that maybe the reason why I didn't get anything out of the runs is because the muscle activation wasn't the same. And so running inside wasn't training me well to race outside. Um, and at least yeah. according to these two studies, it, it doesn't appear that that's the case. That there was, there was other things going on that, that, that would maybe lead those runs to not be really high-quality runs. Um, but, but at least from a muscle activation point of view... Um, I was activating all the same muscles, including those crucial, important lower leg muscles that are used so much in the early part of the marathon and that need to be strengthened in marathon training so that the, the, the shift doesn't go off of them as much and as quickly and as early. Um, I, I, I was still activating and training those muscles on the treadmill um, as much as I would have been had I been running outside. That's the takeaway for me. I still don't know whether yeah. I believe it or not, though. <laughs> I'm still... I'm yeah, still uh, or my... Where my head goes is maybe when you're running on the treadmill, you're not building up the bone density or the um, like like the tendon strength or the ligament strength maybe quite as much because this was more specific just to muscle activation, correct? Yeah. It didn't look at at either any of those things, so that could be potentially a new avenue to look at. Yeah, for sure. I I also feel like another different avenue to look at is is incline. You know, there's this old 1996 study that basically says that if you're going to be um, running on the treadmill, you need to set it at 1%, and that'll make up for air resistance, um, the, and, and, and that, will make, that will ultimately make 
running on flat ground, like running on flat ground outside is comparable to running at 1% on a treadmill. Um, and, and so you need to actually turn it up in order to, to make, make up for, for a lack of air resistance that you're going to get inside. Um, I, uh, I read another study a couple of years ago that suggested that, okay, that only really applies if you're going, uh, uh about seven minute pace or faster. Um, so, so there, there's that too, but, but yeah, for me, I, I, I still feel like I'm just, I'm not settled on this question yet. Um, and so it's not muscle activation, but I'm still wondering if there's some other aspect of treadmill running that makes it not quite as good as over ground running. If you're playing the race outside, you know? Um, yeah. So anyway, to be continued, I guess, maybe this is the bench I'm going to go on now. So. This is the start of your bench. This is That's episode right. one of Stranger Things for you. Exactly. Or Stranger yeah. Findings for you. <laughs> yeah, so everybody tune in again in two weeks and hear what Patrick has to say about sleep and hear what I have to say about treadmill running. Yeah. <laughs> right on, right on. Any final words for us here on a, on research uh, on a research podcast here, Patrick? I don't want to say research week because, you know, it's not the whole week. We already released one this week. So uh, anything for us on, on our research podcast? No, I think I like the new format. All right, cool, we'll, man. we'll see how it plays to everyone else. There we go. Short and sweet. By all means, folks, if you do want us to research stuff for you, if you want us to look into things, if you have questions for us and that you think uh, that, that might be of interest to listeners, let us know. Reach out to us. George at ITOcoaching.com. Patrick at ITOcoaching.com. Pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. Patrick, thanks for joining us once again. George, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. All right, man. We'll talk more soon. Thanks, everybody. That'll do it for another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for joining us. You can find us on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pleasant Podcast. Don't forget to check out our sponsors too. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at ITL Coaching on Twitter, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. And of course, our new sponsor, Blue Pineapple Travel, a full-service travel agency that can book travel anywhere in the world for you. They're on Facebook at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, on Instagram at instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel, or simply at bluepineappletravel.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. See you next time.